we present Father's Day by Susan Cartwright-Smith, read by Jane Pulford and Nigel Banks. We planted potatoes on Good Friday. We rushed to do it, but it was important to say, your granddad always planted potatoes on Good Friday as well. Little things, phrases, actions, traditions. It all helped keep him alive. Keep alive a man my two boys had never met. They would have enjoyed him. His wry sense of humour and delight in harmless mischief. His stargazing. His insistence on wearing socks with sandals. And his big, broad hands, which would unexpectedly reach out to be held. We were lucky to escape his illness. Spared seeing him waste away to an empty shell. It took me a long time to remember the man he was. But then a memory would come creeping back. Maybe the smell of pipe tobacco lingering amongst battered hardback books. Maybe a tang of creosote on a damp day. Or the gentle chink of a sandal buckle as sunshine danced on bare arms. Whatever the small sensory fragment, it jolted him back into life and chased the sickness away. So, we plant potatoes on Good Friday and keep the memory of him growing like a well-tended garden. It was the smell of Dad's shed that reminded me. The acrid smell of old pipe smoke overlaid everything due to the stack of tobacco tins he kept to store nails, screws and washers. One day, when visiting Mam for something, I had reason to go into the shed. By the neat piles of old timber, next to his lathe and vice, I saw a roughly carved circle of wood he used to use as a coaster for his dimpled-handled pint mug, the dregs of home brew clinging to its side. I picked up the coaster and smiled I saw Dad daubed on it in red enamel paint. I stroked my hand over the smooth wooden handle of the garden spade, once clean and sharp, and left without a backward glance. The aroma of tobacco and creosote stayed with me for the rest of the day. It was a welcome change from the cloying smell of a body decaying slowly from within. For a moment, in the sunshine, I had remembered who my dad used to be. The bedroom where my father had spent his last days had been aired and was still my mum's room. It had reverted to being a warm, comforting place, smelling of fresh laundry and talk. The low roar of the airing cupboard, of which I used to feel a little afraid, was something which kept me in a sort of permanent childhood mentally, whenever I heard it. It always reminded me of the phase I went through of reading famous five books in my parents' bed when I was too afraid to sleep in my own room, probably brought on by overactive imaginings, probably from reading too many famous five books. My father would tell me stories. Not always restful ones. We had started telling each other stories towards the end, as he needed the excuse to rest more and not admit he was tired. We used to walk together through the woods near the house. The walks were shorter in length, but longer in time as the days went by, and we would remember. Tell me again about the air, I said. I was aware that our walk was slower paced than normal. Why don't we sit a while then? He said, and walked deliberately to a bench. I looked around, disgusted at how tame the woods were now. 
Gone was the wilderness of my youth, there instead was a beast brought to heel. The council paths laid through the woods ostensibly to encourage family walks, but in reality to provide a place for thoughtless people to conveniently empty their dogs. Dad got his breath and surveyed the field in front. These fields were once part of the Wildwood, he said. I know. I remember being gripped with thrilling terror at being lost forever in the woods. The merry mix of oak, birch, beech, thorn, holly and ash, with occasional rowans and elder marking the way. The paths hadn't then subdued the forest floor, and as children we would return home after an entire day away, scratched from brambles, stung from nettles, and bruised and scraped from climbing trees. The Wildwood is a magical place. Witches would come to gather plants, to meet, to swap knowledge. The magical animals ran free. Their homes were safe. Having never so much as glimpsed an adder in the wood, supposedly renowned for them, I said nothing. And where you find witches, you'll always find people who speak ill of them, he said, giving me a glance. And so it was with one young witch. Young for the time, and pretty. She spurned many men's advances, but welcomed almost as many. And people didn't like her free ways, fettered by yokes of their own making. When the witch-finder came, he did not have to look far. People led him there, in case he found them. At first the witch-finder offered her freedom, in return for certain favours. But the witch spat at his feet and laughed in his face. He struck her down and told her to pray for her immortal soul. While the crowds gathered in the town square, thankful that the noose was not for them, the arrogant old fool hunted this wood. This wild wood. Careless of the natural way of things, he let his hounds roam free, worrying the nesting birds terrifying the small creatures of the woods and fouling the paths. The fat old fool rode his horse through the wild wood, the iron-shod feet gouging furrows in the land. A hare, fearful of its form being discovered, darted out of the meadow. The hounds took scent and gave chase. The hare was leading them away from the leverets and its future. At the same time, the witch was being led up to the scaffold, hanging being more popular than burning in this area. Not that many witches were hanged, until a witch-finder found them. As she stood with the noose around her neck, she stared into the distance. As the block was kicked away from under her feet, the hare did one of its mighty leaps to throw the scent. The witch hovered in the air, the noose still lying around her neck, and the dogs, in their rampant confusion, stumbled, turning back and snarling the hoofs of the horse. Witchfinder was thrown, and as his horse slid and stumbled on the half-buried tree roots, his spine broke on impact with the questing fingers of the tree, and his head was smashed in by a flailing iron-clad hoof. The horse and hounds, confused and terrified, ran off into the wild wood. The hare loped back to the witch-finder. The last thing he saw was the face of the witch, smiling. 
He wasn't found until the wild wood had reclaimed at least the top layer of him. Dad chuckled grimly. And what of the witch? The witch finder's back broke. So a terrific clap of thunder sent the superstitious fool scurrying from the town square. No one remained to see a slut die, not if they could save their own stupid skin. So no one knows. He stopped. Is that it? I asked. Yes, I suppose it is. Sometimes I couldn't weigh Dad up, and he was deliberately unreadable at times. As I held a hand out to pull him up, a lean form sat proud in the field, inclined its head to us, then with an enormous sideways leap set off back into the meadow, satisfied that a story had been well told. There'll be lots of hazelnuts next year, Dad, I said as we walked back. We'll have to come and forage. Aye, he said stiffly. You will. I inhaled. Even now a faint trace of pipe smoke clung to the air, as if Dad was still in the house. And in a way, he always would be. Ah, you're here. Eyes fever bright and dancing. Dad scanned my face, taking in the tear stains, blotching and worry. None of that now, he said, and limply tapped the bed beside him. I sat and allowed him to pat my tummy where a new life grew. He grunted slightly. A grimace of pride flickered over his face, but it was brief and replaced quickly by the twist of pain. Oh, Dad, I said, my voice thick with tears. I put my arms around him, alarmed at how little there was left of him, and felt frustrated and guilty at not having visited sooner. No, no, he said. You've the bairn to think of. Don't be upsetting yourself. I clenched my jaw and bit back a retort. I had had that advice given to me several times now, and it angered me. But I wasn't going to allow myself to waste a precious moment with my dad. I didn't know how many I had left. So, shall I tell you a story then? He said. A story? Now? Yes, why not? I've got nothing else to do now but lie here and remember all the stories I haven't told you. Well, okay. If you think you're up to it. It'll take my mind off it, he said. And I didn't really feel I could argue with that. I thought of the stories he used to tell me when I was little. Of the girl who chased cows. Of the wolf who ate trees. Of the boy who ate bird food so he could fly. Of the doff-off goblin. I wondered what he had remembered now. You'll like this one. It's another one about a witch. Dad had for a long time pleased himself with a notion I was a witch. A good witch, mind you. It helped him understand my being a pagan. Okay, what about the witch? Well, people said she was a witch. It happened a long time ago, you know, when people were afraid of such things. She lived in a little cottage in the middle of a forest where no birds sang. The witch missed the sound of the birds, but she kept too many cats, and so the birds would not come near. The townspeople, of course, thought it was because of some black magic. But it was just nature. Anyway, one day all those years ago, the young witch ventured into the town to batter her herbs and vegetables and her soaps. She took her blanket and her barrow and began the long walk into town. It was very early, 
Normally the time when you hear the dawn chorus, but of course the witch did not. What she did hear was the sound of a violin, and it stirred her soul. She tried to locate the source of the music, and eventually came to a clearing. There sat a young man, with wild eyes and tousled hair. He was what used to be referred to as a travelling man. His feet were bare and filthy, but gold glinted on his ears and in his teeth. Suddenly he stopped playing, and the witch felt as if her strings had been cut from above. She felt cold and lonely without the music, and she shivered. The man looked up at her and smiled. He beckoned to her, and she felt herself walking toward him. Will you sit with me a while? he asked. Very well, said the witch. Now, it has never been a very good idea to talk to strange men in woodland clearings, much less sit with them. And soon the young man had the witch laughing softly while he murmured words of love. Teasing a stray lock of hair behind her ear, he pulled her to him. He threw me a look, seeing me squirm a little at the adult turn his story was taking. Shall I go on? Yes. Yes. Very well. The witch was young and pretty, but so lonely, and this handsome young man was in the right place at the right time. It could be said he could charm the birds down from the trees. So they shared a few moments of great passion. The witch fancied herself to be falling in love. She drifted off to sleep, and when she awoke, the young man was gone. Feeling foolish and cold and full of shame, she gathered her clothes and returned home. Again nature took its course, and as the months went by, her belly grew big with child. But never a word from the young man. When she ventured into town, she would hear the townsfolk muttering, Devil's child, and demon lover. People didn't accept that some ladies are freer with their bodies than others, and you don't have to be married to get pregnant. Anyway, as she neared her time for delivery, she had gone to town to try to sell or barter some more goods in order to raise some more money. She heard the enchanting music across the market square, the same music which had persuaded her to abandon herself to its player. And she saw him walking away, playing his violin. Don't worry, though, Dad said, noticing my discomfort. When she started to cry out, an amazing thing happened. The starling started to wheel in the sky. A late display, but the snow had taken everyone, including the birds, by surprise. They performed their dizzying display and chattered and bickered overhead. Well, of course, the townsfolk thought that this was some kind of sign they all rushed forward to help. They were too late to help the witch, unfortunately. As her blood poured down the steps of the monument, she passed away. But she gave birth to a son, and he survived, and was cared for by the townsfolk. And when he returned to the cottage of his mother, the witch, the boy who was born to the sound of birdsong made the birds sing once more in the forest. How? I whispered. Well, he wasn't fond of cats, Dad said. He stopped. Is that it? I asked. Yes, I suppose it is. Dad leaned back, 
eyes closed, his face a mask of pain once more. So? I suppose the moral of the story is, look at what's in front of you. Listen to your heart, not the birds. Never be too disappointed by just how stupid people can be. And never underestimate Mother Nature. Or yourself. With that, he drifted off to sleep, satisfied. Dad never again regained coherence and clung grimly on to the shell of life until finally his body was too worn out to continue. His passing left us all empty, bewildered and crippled with guilt at the relief. It felt strange to be quit in the house. I found myself wandering aimlessly across the market square. I knew the place, but had never really looked at it, and Dad's story came back to me. I climbed gingerly up the steps of the monument, arms out stiff like a doll to balance my bloated body, and looked down at the cobbles. I noticed a line of red cobbles, water pooling round them, which also looked red. I bent down awkwardly and dipped my finger in. It was just water over red stone, and I smiled at my foolish eagerness to believe in the supernatural. Just then, I jolted with shock as a mass of starlings suddenly took off from their roosts and clamoured into the sky. I felt a kick inside, as if my baby was saying he remembered the story too. And I thought of my dad, taking birdsong with him wherever he went. All short stories were edited and compiled by Robert Burgess. And this was an old Dolly production. <laughs>